0: Shavuot Tov, This is John Parsons with Hebrew for Christians. And I want to wish you Shavuot Tov, B'Shem Yeshua Meshechenu. May this be a great week for you as you seek to know the truth of God and to honor the Lord God of Israel. Elohei Abraham, Elohei Yitzchak, Elohei Yaakov. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, in your service of heart, Abodat HaLev as you show yourself approved before God in the study of His Torah, His Word, and His revelation in our beloved Messiah. Amen. Now we have a very exciting Torah portion for this week that concerns the building of the Mishkan, that is the tabernacle, which later became the basis of the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. It's a fascinating study. I hope you'll pay attention as you dig into this Torah with me. But before we begin that, I want to mention that on the Taurus calendar, we're drawing near to Rosh Chodesh Adar, which is the 12th month of the biblical calendar, counting from the month of Nisan. Now, I should interject here that on Jewish leap years, there is an additional month inserted into the Jewish calendar called Adar Sheni, or Adar 2. So, from the point of view of the holidays, Adar 2 is reckoned as the month of Adar, or the quote, 12th month. So, for example, the holiday of Purim will always be celebrated during Adar II on Jewish leap years. Now, this is important because Passover is always celebrated exactly 30 days after the holiday of Purim. So, we need to know when Purim is going to be celebrated in order to calculate the time of Passover. So for more information about Jewish leap years, see the Hebrew for Christians website. Note, however, during both Purim and Passover... We're celebrating God's deliverance of his people, and therefore Adar is considered one of the happiest of the months of the Jewish year. However, since it's the last month of the year, the biblical year, Adar marks a season of Tesheva for us. Just as the month of Elul, which is the month that precedes Rosh Hashanah and the new year in the fall, look at Exodus 23.16, so the month of Adar is a time set apart to re-examine the quality of our spiritual life before the start of the new year of spring. So regardless if there's a leap here or not, we have a time of preparation for us, beginning with the advent of Adar, the month of Adar. So may it be a good week for you as you seek to know the truth of God and honor him and walk in his ways. Lord God Almighty, please help us. Please give us your Holy Spirit to strengthen us, to give us discernment, to give us wisdom, to give us grace, to fathom and apprehend and take hold of all the blessings you came to give us yeshua you came and poured out your life for us you gave everything you had so that we could be your people and i pray that we don't miss that we don't somehow block the reception of your blessing by means of our own stubbornness our own hardness of heart our own selfishness or whatever whatever might block us i pray that you would deliver us from that and draw us close to you, Lord, by your power, by your grace, by your love. I ask this in your holy name. Amen. Now, our Torah portion this week is called Parshat trumah meaning an offering or contribution. And that word comes from a Hebrew root that means to exalt or to set on high. As we'll see, during the time of the revelation at Sinai, God asked the people of Israel to offer contributions to help build a sacred tent called the Mishkan sometimes called tabernacle in English, that would symbolize his presence among the people and provide an altar that recalled God's deliverance of the people by the means of the blood of the Passover lamb. This is called the Korban Tamid. Now, in our Bibles, we can find Parshad Trumah, beginning with Exodus 25, verse 1, running through Exodus 27, 19. And this week, I'm going to do something a little different, and I think this might be the standard way I'm going to do these Torah summaries now. I'm going to go verse by verse, through the portion. I'll do it in English, and then I will add Hebrew insights as I go along and some commentary. I think this approach should be very simple and straightforward, and hopefully very helpful. But before we do this, let's recite the Hebrew blessing for studying the Torah. And it begins like this. Baruch Hata Adonai Eloheinu Melech Olam, Asher Kirshanu B'mitzvotah V'tzivanu La'asok B'divrei Torah. Blessed are you, Eternal One, our God, King over all, who sets us apart by His love, and who wants us to be soaked up in the words of Torah. Amen. That's my translation, but I think it's true to the Hebrew. So with God's help, let's begin. Our Torah portion for this week begins with Moses upon Mount Sinai, surrounded by the Shekinah glory of God, the pillar of cloud and fire, waiting to receive the tablets of the Ten Commandments as a token of the covenant between the Lord and the people of Israel, And then, at this time, God gives him a great vision. The portion begins this way. By the way, I'm reading from the ESV version just because it's fairly common and it's a pretty good translation. Where it's appropriate, I will be substituting Hebrew words or giving further explanations as we read. So I hope you'll find that helpful. So let's begin. Beginning with Exodus chapter 25. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every person whose heart moves him, the Hebrew phrase may kol ish From every person whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. Incidentally, this phrase shows us that God wants free will offerings; He wants offering from the heart without compulsion. He loves a cheerful giver, as it says in the New Testament. So, this is a call for us to give of our innermost hearts to the Lord, our first fruits, the substance of our humanity and our being as people of God, and to make a place for Him. As it says elsewhere in Torah, during Shirat Hayam, the Song of the Sea, this is my God, and I will enshrine Him, I will beautify Him, I will make a place for Him, a dwelling for Him, within my heart, within my soul, within my life. Where does God dwell, in other words, the sages ask? Where God is let into the heart. Where we, the King David said, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he's at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. David set the Lord before him. We likewise need to make a place within us to sanctify the Lord, to esteem him, to revere him, to be aware of his presence. And so that's our job. That's the work of faith, to behold his presence in all things. Incidentally, this is really the secret of having a joy-filled life. We all need encouragement to face these difficult days, don't we? We all need simcha, that's the inner happiness or joy that comes from knowing the truth about God. And being joyful is a matter of faith. We have to choose to believe in it and exercise amunah. We have to believe and receive the blessing of God. So essential is this joy, though, that the sages have said that without it we cannot even do teshuvah, since the goal or end of our repentance is. Healing and blessing from heaven. Yes, there's godly sorrow in our lives, but we still rejoice. We're sorrowful, yet rejoicing, because the Lord is faithful to His promises. If you believe that, you'll be transformed. You'll experience some joy, no matter what your circumstances. Indeed, in Hebrew, the letters for the word with joy, besamcha, can spell the word for thought. That's machshavah. Indicating a connection between our inner life, the inner life of our thoughts, and our joy and well-being. Happiness or joy comes from being conscious of reality, understanding the truth, and trusting in God's love for us regardless of our circumstances. So take that to heart, my friends. Faith, hope, love, these three. It's written in the Prophets. For you shall go out from your misery, your bondage, your unhappiness, with joy, or by means of joy, by samcha. And you shall be led forth with peace. This is from Yeshayahu, Isaiah fifty-five twelve. Our struggles are used by God to lead us to higher ground. Yerida litzorich aliyah. Descent is for the purpose of ascent. Therefore, we die daily, as Yeshua said, "Truly, truly, I say, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit." This is from John's Gospel, twelve twenty-four, which means that a Higher realm of existence breaks forth from the extinction of a lower form that preceded it. The life of Messiah triumphs over death. We follow him. It's by means of his being the seed that died. That we are then taken up into the bloom and life and being of his resurrection power. It's a mitzvah to always think the best. To trust that God works all things for good as we make our pilgrimage through this life. So for the sake of your joy and strength. Think on these things. That's from Philippians 4, verse 8. Getting back to our Torah portion, it continues, and this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and copper, blue and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanidrum skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and fragrant incense, onyx, stones, stones for settings, For the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst. This is the key phrase of this opening section. Va'asuli mikdash, v'shanchanti betocham. Let them make me a sanctuary, mikdash, a holy place, that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern, the tabnit hamishkan, the pattern, of all its furnishings, so you shall make it. Now that begins our Torah reading for this week, the call for a sanctuary. And again, the key is that God wants to dwell in the midst of his people. The fire of Sinai that Moses experienced, the glory cloud, the Shekinah, he wants it to be carried among the people within them, within their hearts. And it's going to be symbolized by this tabernacle or mishkan. So again, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the children of Israel that they should take for me a contribution, truma, that's the name of our Torah portion, from everyone whose heart is moved. And that begins this reading for this week. The sages remark that the phrase take for me a portion states the principle of spiritual life. In every circumstance, wherever you go or whatever you do, bring God into your experience. Look at 1 Corinthians 10:31. Take for me a portion means take the desires and pleasures of the ordinary and transform them to be for me, that is, for the soul or for the heart of your spiritual life. This further explains the custom of offering up a hundred blessings a day in our lives. We give thanks to God for the mundane pleasures of our everyday lives. Whether we're tasting a fruit or watching a baby take his first steps or seeing some great events, we are still, in every case, Sanctifying the Lord God by acknowledging his presence, by making a place for him within our hearts and within our experience. And that's the way of sanctification of growth is we open our eyes and our hearts to his presence. When God said to Moses, let them make a sanctuary, a m'kdash for me, so that I can dwell in their midst, this is the, the essence, if you will, of our relationship to God. We are to make a place for him. This is essential to understand. The Mishkan, or the tabernacle, was a revelation of a pattern, a symbol that would prefigure further revelation for the people, namely that of the Lamb of God, as we'll see as we continue our study of Torah. Our Torah portion continues. on in Exodus 25, verse 10 here. They shall make an ark of acacia wood, aron et se shittim. Two cubits and a half shall be its length. Now a cubit is about 21 inches long. And the, the ark was supposed to be a cubit long and a cubit and a half in its breadth and a cubit and a half in its height. Incidentally, see the Hebrew for Christians website for diagrams about these things, including more specific measurements about cubits and hands' breadths and so on that are used to describe the Torah's uh, measurement system. Now returning to our text, you shall overlay it with pure gold, that's zahab tahor. Inside and outside shall you overlay it, that's key, because we'll see that that implies a certain construction of three and one here that's very, very telling. And you shall make a crown of gold upon it, this is zer zahab. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on one side and two rings on the other you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and you shall put the poles into the rings of the side of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark haedut, the testimony that I shall give you. That's referring to the Ten Commandments that Moses received. Okay, first of all, God wanted an ark of acacia wood to be made that was to be overlaid with pure gold inside and out. The sages say that first a wooden ark was made, and then two pure gold boxes, one to fit inside the wooden box and another to fit around the wooden box, thereby creating a three-in-one box. In other words, the Ark was composed of three separate and overlapping boxes, a wooden box covered by a gold box with another gold box inside. The Ark was also to have a crown of gold called a Zare that went around its top, and it would hold the Ark's cover, called the kaporit, which we'll talk about in a little bit here, Four rings of gold were placed on the upper corners of the outer box, and these were used for gold-covered carrying poles. So it's a very interesting ritual object, is it not? A three-in-one box that's going to contain within it the terms of the covenant. It is of utmost sanctity. It will be stored in the innermost chamber of the Holy of Holies, and then this is to signify its utter sanctity, the revelation of God, and it will be at this place that the blood of atonement will be applied over the broken tablets, as we'll see a little bit later. So this is a huge revelation of the cross of Messiah, the, the three-in-one aspect of the divine bearing upon, carrying within the heart of God, the law of God, and then the blood being shed, sacrificial blood being shed to atone for sin of the broken covenant, and this, again, is a picture of the cross and how truth and mercy kiss, as it says in Psalm 85. Chesed ve'emet nifgashu, sedek ve'shalom nashaku. Mercy and truth meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. This is Psalm 85.10. So, very, very fascinating that we have this prefigurement of the cross of Messiah and His work as our Kohen Gadot, the New Covenant, prefigured here in the Ark of the Covenant. Our Torah portion continues with a discussion now of the Kaporet, or the what's called the mercy seat. I'm on Exodus chapter 25, or 17. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Now the Hebrew is kaporet zahab door. Kaporet is connected to the word kippur or covering. There's a Yom Kippur connection here that we'll see. But At any rate, back to the text. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half shall be its breadth. So therefore, it's measuring, obviously, the Ark of the Covenant. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, shenayim keruvim zahav, of hammered work shall you make them, on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub, or keruv, on one end, and one cherub on the other. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the two cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings, kind of theme, above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall their faces be, and you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony, hadut, that I shall give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, meal ha from between the two cherubim, meben shnei ha cherubim. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, Maal Hakaporet, and from between the two cherubim, Mabane Shene Hakeravim, that are on the ark of the covenant. There I will speak with you about all that I command the people of Israel. Upon the ark of the testimony was to be placed the kaporet, as I have mentioned, a cover of pure gold, sometimes called the mercy seat, and upon which were to be fashioned two cherubim. These are angel-like figures that would face one another. The kippurit rested on top of the walls of the ark, just inside the outer box, and was held in place by the crown or border of the ark. The cherubim were made from the same piece of gold as the kaporit, one beaten or hammered piece of gold. Now, according to the Talmud, the cherubim represented children, one boy and one girl, and measured ten tefehim to the top of their heads. It's about 35 inches or so. The wings of the cherubim were spread outward and upward above their heads, covering most of the cover while their eyes gazed down upon the ark. From between the outstretched wings of the cherubim, God would appear to reveal additional Torah, it says. God's word would descend from heaven to the space between the cherubim where Moses would be able to hear it at the appointed time. The ark was to be fitted with gold rings and gold-covered poles to make it portable, though those were never really removed from the ark. And the two tablets of the law of the testimony were to be stored inside the Ark. As we'll see later, the three-in-one Ark was to be housed within the innermost chamber of the three-in-one tent called the Holy of Holies. And during the special Yom Kippur Avodah, the blood of atonement, was to be sprinkled on the kippurit or the cover of the Ark, that held the broken tablets of stone. The Holy Ark was the holiest object of the Mishkan, and a symbol of kisehakavod or the throne of glory, It's the only furnishing that was to be placed in the Holy of Holies, Kadosh HaKodeshim. And as already mentioned, inside the Ark were placed these two tablets of stone, the Lukot, and the Sefer Habri, the scroll containing the Mishpatim that was ratified by the elders of Israel at Sinai. A wooden copy of the Ark, sometimes called the War Ark, was later taken into battle by the war priests. You can read about that in Deuteronomy 10 verse 1. However, this war ark was just a copy of the true ark that was in the Mishkan and it was used mostly as a degel or flag or standard to inspire the troops as they fought their battles. Let's continue our reading. It says in Exodus 25 23, you shall make a table of acacia wood Shulchan et seshitim. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height you shall overlay it with pure gold and make a crown of gold around it and you shall make a rim around it about a hand's breadth wide and a molding of gold around the rim and you shall make for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings to the four corners of its legs close to the frame the rings shall lie as holders for the poles to carry the table you shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold and the table shall be carried with these and you shall make its plates and spoons for incense and its flag on some bowls with which you shall pour out drink offerings and you shall make them of pure gold. And you shall set the bread of faces, lechem panim, on the table before me regularly. Okay, adjacent to the Holy of Holies was a second chamber called Kadosh or the Holy Place. Three sacred objects were to be placed within the holy place, or the second chamber of the tabernacle. The table that we're talking about here that held the bread of faces, the menorah, which we'll talk about in a minute, and the golden altar of incense that we're going to talk about next week's Torah portion. It's worth noting that although the holy place was an area of the tent intended for priests to serve in, non-Levites could come into this area of the tabernacle on occasion And some were even honored with lighting the menorah on special occasions. Now the table, the shulchan, held the bread that was to be ritually eaten by the priests as they served in the tabernacle. The root word shulchan, or table, is shalach, meaning to send, and is therefore symbolic of God's provision for his people, for the emissaries of his people. We eat food at our tables in order to be sent into the world to serve the Lord. The table itself was made out of acacia wood covered with pure gold like almost all the furnishings of the tabernacle. And the tabletop was supported by a frame that had a diadem or a crown on it. The four legs were attached to the frame, though some say that the frame appeared above the top like a tray, and therefore the legs were attached directly to the top. At any rate, like the Ark, the two gold-covered poles were used to carry the table, though these were apparently removed when the table sat in the holy place. Included with the table were golden bread molds, spoons, and a supporting frame that would hold the loaves of unleavened bread. According to Rashi, the bread itself was called Lechem HaPanim, the bread of faces, because the two faces or ends of the loaves were to face the sides of the sanctuary. The bread loaves themselves were rectangular in shape and looked a little like open boxes. The the twelve loaves of bread, of unleavened bread, were made of matzah, of course, from pure wheat. That's described in the book of Leviticus chapter 24 and they were stacked one upon another in two columns of six loaves. Each loaf measured five tefahim wide, that's about 17 inches, six tefahim long, that's 21 inches, and two tefahim high. The base of the bread was thin, just a finger's breadth. In addition to the bread molds, two spoons were made, one for each stack that had flat bottoms like a measuring cup, and these were used for incense on the table. The lechem Hapanim panim was baked on Friday and placed on the table on Shabbat. These details are all mentioned in the book of Leviticus, Vayikra chapter 24. It's interesting that this bread was daily bread for the priests, and it is a picture of the face of God given in sustenance and sustaining love for his people. So we see Yeshua being lechem ha-chaim, min the bread from heaven who came down. And feeds us. He is our manna. He is our daily bread. And there is a significant connection here between the bread that God provides in the Mishkan and our service as his people. For more on that, please see articles on the Hebrew for Christians website concerning the manna. Let's move on to the golden menorah. Our reading continues. I'm at Exodus 25, 31 now. You shall make a menorah of pure gold, manarat zahab to The lampstand or menorah shall be made of hammered work, miksha. Its shaft, zarech, its branches, kanim, its cups, geviim, its ornamental petals, kaftorim, and its flowers, perchim, shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches, shishakanim, going out of its side, three branches of the menorah out of one side of it, and three branches of the menorah out of the other side three cups made like almond blossoms gevyim meshekadim each with petals and a flower on one branch and three cups made like almond blossoms each with petals and a flower on the other branch so for the six branches going out of the menorah note that this implies that strictly speaking the menorah is the central shaft from which these branches extend and this central shaft is the shamash, which is the servant who was kindled to bring light to the rest of the flames there. So it is truly a picture of Messiah, Yeshua, our great light of the world. The menorah, as I hope you can see through this description in Torah, resembles a tree. And on the menorah itself there shall be four cups made like almond blossoms with their petals and flowers, and petals of one piece with it which shall be under the pair of six branches going out from the menorah, their petals and their branches shall be one piece with it, the whole of it, a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps, Shivana wrote, for it, and a lamp shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. Its tongs and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made with all these utensils out of a talent of pure gold. And see that you make them after the pattern, Tabneet, which is being shown to you on the mountain. So what a fascinatingly complex image we have here of the sacred menorah or lampstand that was formed from one piece of pure beaten gold and weighed over three thousand shekels of silver. That's over a hundred pounds. It was highly decorative, a highly decorative work that had seven branches with seven lamps. The seventh branch, as I'm calling it, is actually the shamash which was elevated above and would, the other lamps with wicks would be bent toward. Nine flower blooms, 11 fruits, 22 cups are all identified. According to the Talmud, the menorah measured 18 tefekim or palms in height from the base of the start of lamps are roughly five and a quarter, five and a half feet. It's called the lamp of God, Neer Elohim in the scriptures. Look at 1 Samuel 3 verse 3 for that. This lamp of God was to be made by hammering a single piece of solid gold into shape, as we read in Exodus 25 here. Note that the word translated hammered or beaten, miksha, comes from the word difficult in Hebrew, kashe. According to Midrash, the method for constructing a menorah was so difficult for Moses to comprehend that the Lord had to first show him one in a fire and then said, this is how you're going to have to make it. Moses was unable to do this, however, so the Lord told him to take a block of gold and have Bezalel, the carpenter from Judah, throw it into the fire. After a flash of dazzling light, a menorah came out fully formed by God himself. For more information about this menorah, the menorah of God, see an article on the Hebrew for Christians website called A Closer Look at the Menorah, where you can actually see a diagram of the the fruits on it, the almond engravings, the cups, the flowers, the lamps, the what are called apples of the base of the menorah. It's absolutely brilliant. It's beautiful. And again, really fascinating. The shamas, so the central shaft of this servant light, the very first one that was to be kindled by the priest, the central shaft light had all the other wicks bent toward it on the menorah so that they all shine toward its greater light, a picture of Yeshua, the great light of the world. Or Ha'olam, blessed be he. Continuing our Torah portion, we're going to now discuss the curtains of the tent or the ohel of the Mishkan. This is the component which was the structure, a tent-like structure where the priests would serve, divided into three sections as I mentioned before. I'm beginning with chapter 26, verse 1 in Exodus. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle, that is the Mishkan tent, with ten curtains, yeriot, of fine twined linen of blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and you shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits, and the breadth of each curtain 4, and all the curtains shall be the same size. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. And you shall make loops, lulaot, a blue on the edge of the outermost curtain of the first set. Likewise, you shall make loops on the edge of the outermost curtain in the second set. Fifty loops you shall make on the one curtain, and fifty loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain that is in the second set. The loops shall be opposite one another, and you shall make fifty clasps of gold and couple the curtains one to another with the clasps, so that the tabernacle may be a single hole. And here's a key phrase, mishkan echad," and therefore the mishkan will be one thing. So the curtains here are representing a bounding condition, if you will. You have the chotzer, the court that's on the outside, and then you have this threefold structure that is the mishkan proper. But the idea here is that there is a unity in all these different components and therefore it is ahad. We've talked about this before, how the word ahad when we say Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Achad, God is one. We do not mean yachid or numerically unique in one and only in the sense of discrete numeric identity, but rather one in the terms of unity and plurality within unity. So this is the one in the many concept the Greeks struggled with, but it is solved in the concept of HaShelush HaKadosh, or the Holy Trinity. Uh, I don't really like that phrase, Trinity, so much, but because God is one, I like to stress the oneness of God, and yet at the same time there is truly three different real, ontologically real and discrete presences that embody transcendently that oneness. So for more on that, see the Hebrew for Christians website. Continuing the reading, you shall also make curtains of goat's hair for a covering. This is the word ohel over the Mishkan. Eleven curtains you shall make. The length of each curtain shall be 30 cubits, and the breadth of each curtain shall be 4 cubits. The eleven curtains shall be the same size. You shall couple five curtains by themselves, and six curtains by themselves. On the sixth curtain, you shall double over at the front of the tent. You shall make 50 loops on the edge of the curtain, That is outermost in one set and 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that's on the outermost of the second set. Let me interject something here, and that is about the role of oral tradition and Talmud and other types of texts that we have that explain things outside of the biblical text that are not necessarily to be inimically understood or hostile. We shouldn't be hostile toward these things. In other words, as we read this thing, as I'm reading it, it's confusing. And you have to go slowly through the text to get a, a real read on what's happening here. And as the more you study it, the more closely you ask questions about what's going on. What is this loop lulaot? What are, what are the clasps karasim How are how is this to look? And and what is it? How is it to be put together? You begin to understand that not everything is written down in the Torah that explains what the Torah is. For example, there is no explicit description of how the menorah was made. It was just we're just told that it was thrown in the fire and came out. Uh, there are other examples. We, we have sort of general descriptions given here, but the details about how to form these clasps and loops and how to twine and embroider these things, the, the, the design of the, of the screening in the tent and other things, the parochet, the patterns and the colors used and so on, what exactly the cherubim looked like and how they were formed. A lot of that is left outside of the the description we read in the Torah. So we have to go to outside sources to take a look at that, and we don't have to be afraid of that. We we can just trust that God has given us what we need to understand in the written Torah, and yet consult these other sources to get a better idea of what's happening. One thing certain, though, is that if you're going to go to outside sources about the Torah and about how the Mishkan is assembled and put together and its components and its fine-tuning, if you will, you're going to go to Jewish sources. You're not going to go to Gentile sources that know nothing about this. You're certainly not going to read Martin Luther about the details of the Mishkan. It's just not going to, he's not going to have any information there for you. You have to go back and look at the Hebrew. You have to go back and look at Talmud and the other kinds of conversations that have gone on about this, and then start tentatively putting it together. This, again, goes back to the concept that the Torah doesn't come with its own dictionary or instruction manual about how to read it. We have to do hermeneutics based on common sense. We use the grammatical, logical, grammatical, and historical method to read the scriptures. We we read it in context. We read it in the original language. We we look at how language is being used at that time period to get a better understanding of the words. In the case of the Torah, we can look at the Septuagint or the LXX and see how the Greek is rendered. You know, this was 300 years before the time of Yeshua, and the New Testament writers certainly knew the Greek. Old Testament and Greek Torah, so we can get some good ideas about how the Torah was understood and how the Hebrew language was expressed in the ancient Greek language at the time. So there's a method here, but it's not a simple one. And a lot of Christian people just seem to not get this idea at all, and they get offended or threatened by it. I think some of this comes from the old battle between Protestant Protestantism and Catholicism uh, in the West. And, of course, the Catholic traditions, the Byzantine traditions, the Russian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, and so on, run into all sorts of exegetical errors here. For example, the Roman Catholic tradition is basically a replacement theology tradition, as you can see. Uh, We don't believe in a Levitical priesthood today. That has been abolished by the Messiah. We have a new covenant, a new priest a new priesthood. And what the Catholic Church did was it took the concept of the Kohen Godot, or high priest, and made that the Pope, took the Levites, Levitical workers of the tabernacle and turned those into priests and bishops, and then made the laity, the outsiders, the basically the Israelite masses, if you will. And this is a direct copy, kind of an apish copy, of the, what the Torah describes as being the way of the tabernacle and later the temple but it really misses the bigger point that the tabernacle and the temple were both foreshadowing the substance to come and that's the messiah so at the risk of offending my dear catholic friends out there please understand that when the priests and the bishops and the pope are all arrayed in their finery And they're going about doing these liturgical rituals. This is a very crude form of replacement theology. There is absolutely no doubt about it. The church does not replace Israel. The people of God, the Christian followers, are in place or made part of the greater olive tree of Israel. We are partakers of the covenantal blessings of Torah and of the prophets and so on. So don't get the cart before the horse or, as Paul says, don't let the branches boast over the root. The root is the Jewish people, and really the ultimate root is Yeshua, who is the king of the Jews, and from that derives the the political and social body of, of Messiah in this world, but it's certainly not built on a hierarchical system like the Levitical priests, certainly nothing like the Catholic Church. If anything, Jesus said, you know, we want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, to be the servant of all. There isn't a big hat, little hat sort of thing going on here there isn't people that are going to have fine robes that are higher up than others on the scale when we go to heaven the greatest will be the the most lowly of the servants and to be great in the kingdom of heaven is to be the servant of all so please please understand that and uh, so i'm digressing i understand that but i wanted to interject that here because it is important when we consider what this is and especially as we understand the role of oral tradition The oral tradition I'm referring to here has to do with the Jewish oral traditions that was set up and established by God himself through the court system. You remember Jethro and the 70 elders of Israel, the Sanhedrin, and then later Ezra the scribe and the elders of Israel and their role among the people. And really the whole court system that was put into place where the law was interpreted and applied among the people of Israel and the Levites had their discussions in the cities of refuge, and there was teaching throughout Israel. All that was part of the culture of being Jewish, and that tradition is what I'm referring to here. I'm not talking about crazy hand-washing rituals and things that Jesus had a a problem with, tithing mint and cinnamon and things like that. No, 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 I'm talking about tradition that has to do with how we understand the Torah, that it is the context, and there is... Evidential reasons for reading our Torah in light of other historical documents to get a better understanding of it. So I hope that makes sense. There's a lot about this on the Hebrew for Christians website about the role of tradition and its importance in our lives. And I don't want to be one of these foolish people who thinks that all you need is Jesus in the Bible, you don't need anything else, and that's enough. And not to say God can't use the Bible. And someone's simple faith to bring about real understanding and even salvation. But I am saying that if you really want to understand what the text is saying, you have to do some hard work. And you'd have to dig through the text and ask God for wisdom. So I hope that makes some sense to you. Okay, returning to our Torah portion, the Mishkan consisted of two logical sections or parts in general. A ten light structure called the Ohel and an outer court called the Chotzer. Now, the tent was divided into three geometric sections. The holy place had two parts, and then the holy of holies, which was another part. Within the holy place were three furnishings. The altar of incense, described in the next week's portion. The menorah, that we already talked about, and the table of showbread, which we talked about too. The altar of incense was the central object of the holy place, situated directly in front of the parochet that's the curtain that separated the Ark of the Covenant from the holy place. The incense represented the aroma or fragrance of prayer and sacrifice and service to God. And the menorah represented the divine light and was the only source of light in the tabernacle itself. In other words, there were no windows in the Mishkan, and the Ark of the Covenant, for that matter, was in complete and total darkness. The central branch of the menorah, called the shamash, was called the westernmost lamp because it faced the Ark of the Covenant. Unlike the other lamps, the westernmost lamp burned continuously and therefore represented the eternal light, or near tamid. Look at John 1, four and about that. The table, or shulchan, held the bread of faces, or the bread of presence, which represented the manna and God's provision for his people. Look at John's Gospels, chapter 6. The veil or the parochet separating the holy place from the holy of holies is likened to the body of Yeshua that was broken for us. Look at Hebrews 10:12, Matthew 27.51, Hebrews 9:20, and 10.10 10, and 10.12 10, and so on. The Ark of the Covenant, and in particular the Kapord or mercy seat, represents the throne of God. Look at Hebrews 4.16, 2 Kings 19:15. We're propitiation for our sins. Was made. Look at Romans 3:25, where the, the word for propitiation is the same word used to describe the Yom Kippur avodah in the Torah. Now, the outer court of the Mishkan measured. 100 emote, which is about 175 feet, by 50 emote, which is about 87 and half feet. On the east side of the courtyard, 30 emote from the entrance, a copper altar was to be used for daily sacrifices. We'll learn about that in next week's Torah. In addition, a copper water basin was to be used by the priests after performing their ministrations, also described in next week's Torah reading. The outer court was to be surrounded by a series of interconnecting posts held in place by silver sockets from which curtains of blue, purple, and scarlet linen were to be hung. There's a nice diagram of the Mishkan that you can take a look at on the Hebrew for Christians website. Let me add a few other quick comments in this connection. Yeshua is said to have tabernacled with us, thereby implying the connection between his ministry and the redemptive program of the Mishkan. Look at John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 14. The Mishkan and its furnishings were created by Betzalel, a young man filled with the Ruach HaKodesh from the tribe of Judah, who was described using the very same attributes as the creator of the universe. Look at Exodus 35:31, Proverbs 3:19 through 20 As I have written about on Hebrew for Christians' website, Betzalel is a picture of Yeshua the Messiah. He was a man from Judah who was a carpenter who built the house of God. According to the Talmud, Bezalel was just 13 years old when he began building the tabernacle. As a young man chosen by God himself, Bezalel came and healed the wound that was caused by the sin of the golden calf, that's from Shemot Rabbah, which likewise prefigures healing from the consequences of the original sin. The high priest, or Kohen Gadol, and his garments likewise are richly symbolic of the ministry of Yeshua, including the elaborate ordination process that required the anointing, mashach, of oil, and the application of sacrificial blood upon the priest's hands, feet, and forehead. The clothing also suggests an imputed righteousness that allowed access into the divine presence by God's grace. Of course, the author of the book of Hebrews makes many more comparisons and distinctions between the Levitical priesthood and the greater priesthood of Yeshua, especially in light of the symbolism associated with the great priest named Malkit to whom Abraham gave tithes. For more information about this, please see the Hebrew for Christians website. So, again, next week's Torah reading is going to discuss some of these issues, including the garments of the high priests and priests and, and how they represent Yeshua. But for now, we're just getting introduced to the tabernacle in our Torah reading, and we'll learn a lot more as we proceed in our studies. Okay, friends, well, I hope that you're sticking this out as we continue to read this week's Torah portion We've gone through a lot of information, and a lot of it seems tedious, but when we see the Messiah revealed in it, it awakens, and we're able to see its value and the meaning that's hidden in the Scriptures. So seek the Lord while he may be found. Draw close to him while he's near. Now let's go back to our Torah, and we're in chapter 27, beginning with verse 1. You shall make the altar of acacia wood, Hamizbech et shittim, Five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits. And you shall make horns. for it on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with copper. Nechoshet. You shall make pots for it to receive its ashes, and shovels, and basins, and forks, and fire firepans. You shall make all its utensils of copper. You shall also make for it a grating. A network of copper and on the net you shall make four copper rings at the four corners and you shall set it under the ledge of the altar so that the net extends halfway down the altar and you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood and overlay them with copper and the poles shall be put through the rings so the poles around the two sides of the altar when it is carried. You shall make it hollow with boards as it has been shown you on the mountain so shall it be. Now note that last phrase Again, the appeal is to the original vision Moses had of the sanctuary and the altar, and that is what is basically the impetus driving this section of Torah as the Mishkan is being described to us. But the original vision was something that was seen and then communicated through written Torah, and of course oral tradition explains how these things were actually fabricated and put together and organized. I have a nice diagram of the bronze altar or the copper altar. Some, by the way, that word nechoshet can also be translated as bronze. Some translations call it the bronze altar. It is better rendered, I think, the copper altar. Mizbech and And uh, at any rate, you can go to the Hebrew for Christians website and there see some drawings of it and some call-outs of the various elements of it. So take a look over there for more information. Our Torah portion concludes this week with a description of the court of the Mishkan. Of course, the court was the place where the people congregated to come before the Divine Presence and brought their animal sacrifices and peace offerings and fellowship offerings. It was a, there was a gate that went into the Mishkan here, a beautiful, lovely gate, place wherein the people would enter and be brought into fellowship with the Lord. It was their place to draw near. It was a happy place, beautiful place with singing and all sorts of music making and rejoicing of the people. So, apart from the idea that it's a gloomy place, a place of blood and fire and smoke and all this, this is a place of joy, a place of fellowship, a place of peace. So, of the court it is written, beginning in chapter 27, verse 9, You shall make the court of the Mishkan, Hamishkan, on the south side of the court, shall have hangings of fine twined linen, a uh, 100 cubits long for one side. It's 20 pillars, or amudim, and their 20 bases, adenim, that's related to the word Adonai, by the way, shall be of copper. But the hooks, vavim, of the pillars and their clasps shall be of silver, or kesef. And likewise, for its length on the north side, there shall be hangings, a 100 cubits long, his pillars, twenty, and their bases, twenty, of copper, But the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And for the breadth of the cord on the west side, there shall be hangings for fifty cubits, with ten pillars and ten bases. The breadth of the cord on the front to the east shall be fifty cubits. The hangings for the one side of the gate shall be fifteen cubits, with their three pillars and their three bases. On the other side, the hangings shall be of fifteen cubits, with their three pillars and bases. For the gate of the court, sha'ar hachatser, there shall be a screen, masach, twenty cubits long, of blue and purple and scarlet yarn and fine twined linen, embroidered with needlework. It shall have four pillars and with them four bases. All the pillars around the court shall be filleted with silver. Their hooks shall be of silver, their bases of copper. The length of the court shall be a hundred cubits, the breadth fifty, and the height five cubits with hangings of fine twine linen and bases of copper. All the utensils of the tabernacle, or Mishkan, for every use, and all its pegs and all the pegs of the court shall be made of copper. So the outer court was to include the altar with horns of copper at each corner. The dimensions of the outer court are here given, and the entire court was to be enclosed by a fence made with beautiful fine linen on silver poles, with hooks of silver and sockets of brass or copper. It's just a beautiful image of a wonderful place where God's redemption was being exemplified for the people. It's a beautiful, beautiful type or analogy, analog to the instantiation or incarnation of the Divine Presence in Yeshua. There's so much to learn here, friends, and so many subtleties. There's not a word, a jot, a tittle, shel yod. There's not even a stroke of a yod that is unimportant in our Torah, Because it reveals the beauty of our Messiah. And don't forget that Yeshua, our Messiah, is the voice of the Lord. His was the voice speaking out of the fire of the burning bush at Sinai. His was the voice speaking the words of the Ten Commandments to Israel. His was the voice speaking to Moses and the mountain. And so please understand that connection. This is vital. I read Sometimes I read these Christian books and it just blows my mind that they make it seem as if God the Father is the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament is Jesus. This is ridiculous. It's absolutely absurd, and it leads to all sorts of crazy thinking. No, it's one God, Adonai Echad, and the love of God is seen at Sinai as much as it's seen at the cross. We need the law. Faith establishes the law, as Paul says, and yet the cross, of course, is the means of healing as it was exemplified through the vision of the Mishkan and this altar of sacrifice given therein, and in particular, in the daily sacrifice of a lamb. This is called Korban Tamid. It was a defect-free male lamb that was to be sacrificed every evening and morning, every day, at the tabernacle. This commemorated the Passover redemption, the blood of a lamb, and it also foreshadowed and foretold the coming lamb of God. So every day and night, There was a Ola offering, a full consuming fire of the Lamb that was being given up and being put to smoke, brought to heaven, ascending to heaven, a holy fragrance on behalf of the people for their healing and for the love of God to be manifest so that he would dwell in their midst. And that's really what this Torah portion is about. So I hope you see the connection. This will really help us understand our New Testaments better to understand the meaning and the significance of the tabernacle, the Mishkan. As is my custom with all my Torah table talks and these podcasts, I like to end with some discussion questions and thoughts just for you to consider as you study Torah this week. To give you some perspective, the account of the creation of the universe by Hashem is given in just 34 verses. Look at Genesis 1, 1 through chapter 2, 3. But the description of the Mishkan is described in over 250 verses so that tells us that this is very very substantial to the heart of god this again typifies and represents the idea that creation was for the sake of expressing the revelation of the altar of messiah that yeshua is the beginning lamb slain from the foundation of the world the center he's the center sacrifice and the end he is the great lamb of god who is upon the throne in the book of Revelation vision that we have. So it's all about Revelation and about Yeshua, and the Mishkan is central to that Revelation. Concerning the tabernacle, let me tell you that the standard Jewish interpretation following the sage Rashi is that the commandment to create the tabernacle was given after the sin of the golden calf and functioned as a means of repairing the breach caused by that sin. Rabbinical tradition likes that approach because it wants to separate the giving of the law and the idea of blood atonement and sacrifice for sin. However, some commentators, such as Nachmanides, do not follow Rashi and disagree with him and feel that the tabernacle, as I've said, is the culmination of the revelation at Sinai. After all, it was given during Moses' 40 days and nights up on the mountain It was given in vision. There's explicit language that says it was a vision and a pattern that the people were to receive. Moreover, the idea of blood atonement is intensely linked with the idea of redemption of the Jewish people, first in the Passover, second at the sacrificial ratification of HaSephir HaBrit at the beginning of Sinai revelation, and then later on, of course, through the giving of Messiah and his sacrifice for our sins. The life is in the blood, as it says later in Vayikra, which means that God gave the blood to be placed on the altar to make atonement for our sin. This is Torah. This is central to the idea of Torah. In fact, the book of Leviticus, or Vayikra, is the central book of the Torah. It is the central idea of all Torah, is the idea of blood sacrifice, given primarily through the Lamb of God. Now I think Rashi's point might have been better made had he associated the sin of the golden calf with the, with the waters of separation given through the red heifer sacrifice. There I can see a connection between the golden calf and a red heifer because they're both a reddish color and they both are opposites of one another. The golden calf being a symbol of idolatry and the sin of the people and the red heifer being the means by which, the ashes of which, mixed with the water of purification, would cleanse people from contact with death. So there's a case there to be made, but certainly not connecting the idea of the tabernacle with the sin of the golden calf. That is, I think, a fallacious inference, and one in which I strongly disagree with Jewish tradition. But what do you think? Here's another discussion question. The origin of the word cherubim is uncertain. Some say it derives from the Hebrew word ki, like, and the Aramaic word rabia, a child, which may explain artistic depictions of cherubim as winged little children. The cherubim are first mentioned guarding the access to the tree of life in the Garden of Eden after the sin of Adam and Eve, and they next appear as statutes mounted on the mercy seat over the Ark of the Covenant, as we discussed here in our Torah portion. Now, God is said to be enthroned over the cherubim. This in 1 Samuel 4.4, 4, Psalm 80, verse 1, and so on. But the second commandment says that we are not to make any sculptured image, pestle, or any likeness, temunah, of what is in the heaven above. So how then can we explain God's commandment to create cherubim for the Ark of the Covenant when we're also given in Torah the restriction not to make any image of any likeness of something that's in the heavens? So this is somewhat paradoxical, and it's worth considering this question and trying to figure out an adequate response. Here's another discussion question. The sages say that the word altar, misbeach, is an acronym for mechila, meaning forgiveness, which can be sought by sacrifice, zechut, or merit, gained from obedience to the ritual, bracha, or blessing, that comes from trusting in God's provision for sin, and chaim, life, that comes from God's grace. So if you were asked... How would you explain the cross of Messiah in these terms? Another discussion question. The word truma means gift from the heart, as I mentioned at the outset of this audio broadcast, and is sometimes used to contrast with the word tzedakah, which is considered a moral duty or righteousness to give to those that are in need. The Hebrew phrase gemelut chesedim means the bestowal of kindness or the practice of chesed, that is, love. The gift of the heart is regarded as greater than tzedakah because love anticipates the needs of others and acts from a sense of compassion. As an old Jewish proverb states, tzedakah awaits the cry of distress, benevolence anticipates the cry of distress. So reflect on how you express the love of God in your life. Do you give tzedakah? In what ways do you give tzedakah? Are you a benevolent person? Are you practicing compassion? If so, In what ways? And if not, if you struggle with tzedakah or showing compassion, why do you think that is? The sages note that the phrase, that I may dwell in our midst, could be translated as, that I may dwell within them, suggesting that the point of the Mishkan, or tabernacle, was to bring God within the hearts of his people. We must create a place within our hearts, in other words, for God to dwell within us. Yeshua likewise told us that we would experience peace and joy when we would, quote, abide in him. Some of the sages have said that the physical Mishkan and later the temple was given as a concession to the frailty of man. After all, when the people had the opportunity to encounter God without a mediator at Sinai, they shrank back in terror. The Mishkan, or tabernacle then, presented a form of mediation that provided symbols to help bring heaven down to earth. The physical presence of the tabernacle attempted to convey a sense of the imminence of God in the world. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole world is filled with His glory. Isaiah 6.3 The scriptures plainly teach, however, that there is literally no place where God can physically dwell. When King Solomon dedicated the Beit HaMikdash, or the Temple of Jerusalem, he rhetorically prayed, Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. That's from 1 Kings 8.27 Likewise, the prophet Jeremiah reports the word of the Lord, Do I not fill heaven and earth? Jeremiah 23:24. Understood in light of this truth, it's clear that the tabernacle was meant to symbolize a deeper spiritual reality of the heart. As Yeshua said, the kingdom of God is within you. That's from Luke 17:21. The deepest message of the tabernacle, however, has to do with sacrificial love. The entire reason for the sacrificial system was to draw us close to God. The sacrifice of an innocent animal for the sake of a sinner provided tangible hope that a holy and righteous God made a way of love and acceptance to prevail. Indeed, the idea of sacrifice, or korban, is a means of drawing us near. The various sacrificial rituals were, quote, examples and shadows of the heavenly reality that was given in the sacrifice of Yeshua, the Lamb of God. Look at Hebrews 8, verse 5 and 10, verse 1. Because of Yeshua, God draws near to us so that we can draw near to him. He is the ultimate korban that brings us into eternal fellowship with God. Yeshua is the Father's gift of heart given to you. The love of God put the blood of the Son on the cross, just as the love of God provided the altar at the tabernacle. Both in the sacrificial rites of the copper altar and in the later fulfillment at the crucifixion of Yeshua, the heart needs to trust in God's personal love Yeshua stands at the door and knocks, ready to eat a covenant ratification meal with all those willing to put their trust in Him. Look at Revelation 3, verse 20. May you find courage to open your heart to Him now. Well, a lot more could be said about this week's Torah reading, but there are many resources on Hebrew for Christians to help you dig deeper. Please go there and look under the weekly Torah reading and find Parshat Terumah, which is this week's reading. And look at the various articles and links that I have there. Also download the free Shabbat Table Talk for Parshat Terima. And that will give you further food for thought about this week's Torah reading. Now, Lord, we just want to thank you for the gift of your word and the truth of your word. And what your word does within us to help us grow and to know you better and to savor The greatness and glory that belongs to you alone. Thine, O Lord, is the kingdom, and thou art exalted as head above all. Everything that exists belongs to you, and we are your people, the sheep of your pasture. Please help us. Please help us draw near to you. Help us to walk with you. God, I beg you. I plead with you. My heart cries out to you. I lift up my hands unto you, Lord. I'm asking that you would help us all. Bring us to you. Restore us to you, Lord. Hashivenu. Turn us, we shall be turned. Heal us, O Lord. Help us to walk with you. Help us to be your people. Help us to honor you in our words and our deeds. Help us to walk in the fear of the Lord. Help us to keep our minds set on you. Help us to breathe in the Holy Spirit's truth and to be surrounded with your comforts and graces that you give to us. And Help us to be mindful and awake and Exercise hakaratova, have good eye, and to use our language and our minds and our wills for the exercise of your glory and praise in all things. So please help us, God. I just cry out to you. Help us. Help us in our pains. Help us in our weaknesses. Help us in our struggles. Help us to walk with you. Don't let Satan blind our eyes. Don't let Satan distract us or pull us away from you. Please, Lord, I plead with you for our families, for our friends, that you will draw us close, that you will bring us the healing we so desperately need to walk with you in the truth. Thank you for hearing this prayer so much. We love you, Lord. And let me end with the great Hebrew blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you His shalom, His healing love. In the name of Jesus, our Messiah, He is the Lord. Every blessing in Messiah be it on you. By faith, receive it now. Amen. For more information visit us at www.hebrewforchristians.com or google learn hebrew free